students. Um, this is where we have our masters and our PhD students in health professions education present on their current and upcoming research. Thank you for entering the space. My name is Janice Palaganis. I'm a behavioral scientist and a researcher uh, from MGHIHP as well as Harvard Medical School. Um, I'm co-moderating this session with Dr. B.A. White, who's going to introduce herself in a second or two. B.A., along with Dawn here, uh, we found a particular passion in health professions education, particularly educating educators, and have made it our professional missions to improve how we do this. B.A., throwing the mic over to you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, super excited to be here, coming straight off of vacation. I um, also work for MGHIHP, teach in the areas of leadership and education. And then my other life is um, doing faculty development in the Department of Surgery. So like Jay said, really just a passion for educating educators and um, helping people throughout their process. So thank you, back to you. So our goal for this room is to allow our students the opportunity to learn from all of you um, to discuss their research, completed, ongoing, and future, and brainstorm deeper topics with you. So today we have with us Dawn Wawersik, a PhD student at MGHIHP. She's also nursing simulation faculty and technology instructor um, at Henry Ford College in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, Dawn has a particular passion in psychological safety, speaking up, error reporting, and healthcare simulation, um, which she kind of became a magnet for my interest, so I was very excited to be working with her on this. Dawn, maybe we can set the stage by, um, if you'd like to introduce your topic and your research. Good morning. Thank you, Janice. Thank you, BA. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so, and I'm really excited about my research. So what I'm going to talk about is error reporting in healthcare. And we all know that error reporting still happens, even though we've had so many different ways to try to implement policy and procedure to promote speaking up. There's still a burden on the healthcare system that affects both people with emotional burden and impacts people in a lot of different ways and impacts organizations and communities. There's no denying the errors are a problem. So you know, we know from our research that error reporting is one way that we can learn how to decrease errors. So we know from research that error reporting is one way that we can decrease errors. And the reason I say this is think about the proverbial Swiss cheese that we always talk about our um, patients kind of fall through if the Swiss cheese holes just line up. And really error reporting can disrupt that flow of that patient through. So my research is really, um, there's been a lot of research around psychological safety and just culture that can help disrupt that flow to help prevent errors. But there's like this gap in between organizational policies and procedures and how individuals view the policies and procedures. So that's where my research really is, is in that space in between organizational factors, which would be organizational leadership policies and procedures, and the individual characteristics that perceives these policies and procedures. So everyone perceives things differently. Everyone has their own values, beliefs, cultures, different beliefs systems that affect how we perceive those policies and procedures that are in place. So my research is really about that space of how do we get organization policies and procedures to meet the individual where they are to promote better error reporting. So my first dissertation study had actually three different papers where we did 
a systematic review of the organizational factors and another systematic review of individual characteristics. So Janice and I pulled 420 articles for the organizational factors. And out of those, after screening, quality assessment, and data extraction, we had 29 articles that met inclusion criteria, and they included those in the study. And the factors that came out of that was nothing surprising. It was everything that you would expect, that supportive leadership promotes error reporting, education and training supports error reporting, and having a non-punitive response to errors. And of course, the most pervasive barrier was fear. And so, that was not surprising at all. One of the things that we did find is it just supported that, you know, training is not enough, that having the policies and procedures, we still aren't getting the error reporting up to where we want it to be, where teams feel safe to report in real time or to report to a system. We also found that all of the organizations are doing, a lot of people are do, have the same goal, but are doing different things. So the second study which showed a little bit of the same, but was really interesting, was to investigate individual characteristics that support or prevent speaking up behaviors when adverse events occur. So we were looking at individual characteristics, but also looking at the organizational interventions and how they relate specifically to the individual person. So we conducted another scoping review. This time we got 1,269 records and through quality assessment, data extraction and screening, we got it down to 28 records that were included in the review. And again, we found fear as the most pervasive barrier. Um, and then we found that emotional intelligence and moral courage were actually key in promoting um, individual characteristics to report. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But what I want to really point out is that fear is really, it really outweighs anything the organization does. So it doesn't really, you can have all of the policies and procedures in place, but if your people are fearful of reporting, it's just not going to happen. So how do you move people from from moral values and ethics, wanting to do the right thing and overcome their fear, we found in the research that moral courage and emotional intelligence were kind of key to that. So perceptions of fear um, is going to be hard to overcome unless you have moral courage. So we did a third paper. The third paper is, the, is not really a study. It's a conceptual paper where it discusses that space that we talked about uh, that is the organizational factors, and individual factors, that space in between of how do we move people that have the fear to experience moral courage and make that, and did I define moral courage? I don't think so. Go for it. Okay. So moral courage is basically um, this. So if you have an, a situation where you have perfect psychological safety, there's policies and procedures in place, and people feel safe, and it's a great environment, plus the individual has um, moral ethics and values, has all those individual characteristics that are important, like accountability and responsibility, then moral courage doesn't really apply. It's really easy to report in those situations. However, when you have the situation, because even as perfect as you think your organization might be, there's always going to be a situation where someone doesn't feel psychologically safe. That's where moral courage comes in. Moral courage is in the absence of psychological safety. I'm still going to make the choice to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. So then the question will be, how do we move people from moral values? Because we assume that when we when we hire people that they have the moral values and ethics. If not, that's a completely different scope and out of my, out of my scope of this research. Um, we are going to 
hire people who have moral values and ethics. And we assume that everyone, you know, wants to do the right thing. But how do you move them to do that in a situation where they don't have psychological safety? So that's where my next study comes in, which is the qualitative interviews. So this is a proposed study that's in progress at the moment that we are taking the perspectives of health professions, educators, and creating a space where organizational factors meet individual characteristics. And what we're exploring here is the interprofessional perspectives of the challenges in achieving positive error reporting environments. And the goal is to inform learning and teaching points for effective pre-licensure education. So what my passion is, is moving people in pre-licensure, teaching that, trying to grow that moral courage from the ground up. So um, and that's kind of what we're looking at. So we did, I'm doing this one through a constructivist grounded theory because I want it to be inductive through qualitative interviews with a group of interprofessional health profession educators at Henry Ford College. And recruitment is already in progress. And we have in the beginning of August, we'll be uh, starting our our interviews. And we are modifying our questions because the original questions were based more on psychological safety. And then when we discovered that moral courage was really where this lives, uh, we'll be changing those questions. So I I'm, I'm, would be happy to hear some feedback from all of you about what kinds of questions would help with that. And then that moves us into study three. So once we have the um, all of the information from the health professions educators, I, what we are building is a simulation that will measure the impact of error reporting education through healthcare simulation. So we wanna explore the impact that we can have with moral courage. So this is through the theoretical framework of theory of planned behavior and self-determination theory. The reason I chose these, and I'm open to other theories, we talked in my prospectus defense yesterday that this would be good to look at ethical theories. So if anybody has any theory ethical um, theories on ethics that they'd like to throw out there, that would also be helpful. This is what I chose was theory of planned behavior integrated with self-determination theory, just because theory of planned behavior really speaks to intention and self-determination self theory talks about autonomy. And one is proxismal, the theory of planned behavior is proxismal, and the self-determination theory is distal. So combining those two, I've found some research that found that that's very helpful, and I thought it would be appropriate for this study. And this is going to be a mixed method study. The quantitative portion will be uh, will be doing a mock analysis and a power analysis using the moral courage scale, both pre and post, and then a simulation evaluation also with the post to make sure we catch all capture all of those um, you know perceptions of the learner. And then the qualitative analysis, and I, I want to mention that these are associate degree nursing students in third semester. The qualitative analysis will be debriefing interviews and then the field notes of the researchers. And then we take the mixed methods. The We want to compare and look at, not really compare, but we want to look at the simulation itself, how they performed in the simulation compared to what they said on the moral courage scale. So I can have moral courage. And then when I actually go in and do the simulation, did I speak up? So it will be a healthcare error simulation. 
we do have a few different simulations that we're choosing from, but we want to capture that the, it would be a standardized participant, capture an error in there. And then the standardized participant, of course, we would make sure is de-rolled and is trained well. And IRB obtained from Henry Ford College. So that's my research. Any questions? Thank you so much, Don. Jay, I know you guys have done so much work on this. I can just tell by the um, amount of things that have already been done. And we should probably state for those who are on the call that um, really you're pretty far into your process in the program. So what happened yesterday, Don? Do you want to tell us? Yes, I defended my prospectus yesterday and passed. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> she did great. I just wanted to clarify that because, you know, we're hosting these and Dawn really seemed to have all of her information and I wanted for everybody to know kind of she's pretty far along in her process. And as you were talking through all of these different studies that you're working on, I had loads of questions and it was really fun because I could see kind of the trajectory of what you were doing and how um, you could easily partner with other people and look at additional topics. One of the things that you talked quite a bit about was the biggest issue being fear. And then I noticed you didn't go down that rabbit hole. You instead, as a true educator, decided to go down the rabbit hole of, you know, positive psychology, helping people with moral courage instead, right? Was there any additional information about the folks that continue to be fearful despite there being policies in place, despite there being potential positive leadership, was there any indication as to what the fear was a derivative of? Good question. And yes, because that was also one of my curiosities. And there wasn't a ton of research around that, but I did find some things, and that's what led me to the moral courage. There was some societies, for example, in a, a Muslim culture with a patriarchal society, sometimes there would be not necessarily the fear there, but there would be that cultural aspect. There would also be fear. Um, I know there was a couple of articles that talked about uh, the fear was still there because of past experience or the education, the knowledge, the if you the higher up in the hierarchy you felt more safe. If you were lower in the hierarchy, you didn't, you were more fearful. And that could be from perceived um, slights, things that you heard happened that didn't actually happen, or you just automatically assume that there was going to be, even though they say it's a non-punitive culture, there was a lot of discussion about that, that even though they've never experienced themselves, they were still fearful. So there is needed to be more research about where that comes from and how do you overcome it. So good question. I hope I answered your question. You did. And I, so I do a little bit of work um, in our department of surgery around some of this. And um, there's even unfounded fears that you can, you know, it's really hard to do anything about. So I like the way that you talked about perceived um, issues or perceived potential. Um, I think you were talking about retaliation. Essentially, people were concerned about that. And those are definitely things that continue to come up. Another thing that I was wondering, I thought it was really interesting how you started with psychological safety and then kind of moved into moral courage. And I, I found something similar in that a lot of times whenever I was looking at psychological safety, I found that mutual respect was nearly or as important as psychological safety. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of how you made that transition from focusing on psychological safety 
to moral courage. Absolutely. And that's what is really interesting is that's where I started my research was all about psychological safety. Amy Edmondson is the queen of psychological safety, in my opinion. And I followed her. I snatched up as many of her articles and books and watched her TED Talks. And that was really where I was starting out. But as I jumped into the research and did the first two systematic reviews, I started finding that psychological safety is important and it needs to have that foundation, but that's not enough. Like you said, mutual respect is one thing. There were many things that popped up and really what kept coming up was even though you have a psychologically safe environment, there's still not a movement in that direction. So then I started looking into, okay, what is it? So fear was kept coming up, fear of retaliation, fear of lots of different things, fear of legal consequences. So I moved into, okay, what happens when there's no psychological safety? So moral courage is really in the absence of psychological safety, or if there is psychological safety and you still have these perceptions and you're going to overcome it. And one thing that Janice had brought up early in my research that kept me thinking in this direction is that what happens when you speak up, you've got a psychologically safe environment and you do speak up, but you're met with resistance. We don't always teach the tools of what we do in that situation. We don't, as leaders, always go the next step into, okay, how do you handle that when you meet resistance or you, or as a leader, you know that somebody has already experienced that and how do you bring them back to report again the next time? So I think there's still a lot more research that needs to be done, but that's how I moved into that. It, was, it started with psychological safety and moral courage just came out as something in addition to that. I am loving this conversation because I think it's a reflection of the conversations that we've had much later on after a lot of the research that um, Don and I and Teresa Gore and Mike Booten have done together. I love this line of questioning around psychological safety because I think it's such it's such a big word these days. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I had to explain it and define it. I feel like you say it today. Everybody kind of knows what it is now. And, you know, I think of the Google Aristotle project when they were, they were studying, you know, highly functioning teams and um, they found five characteristics and all of the four characteristics depended on psychological safety was which was I think the third one out of the five and so I think it's interesting that we've been looking at psychological safety as this foundation molecule for everything that we put together in terms of highly functioning teams and yet as we explore our research we're realizing that actually psychological safety is not the foundation of everything there are elements, particles, if you will, that make up psychological safety that we really need to consider. So you mentioned mutual respect, BA. The other thing we've been talking about is trust. Like you can't have psychological safety without trust. And so maybe it's it's going even deeper than psychological safety and looking at some of these things. Um, you know, fear comes from lack of trust. And so trying to figure out more, you know, going to the particles of uh, what matters. And it's so funny. I feel like in social sciences, how often you go through lots of lots of research. And in the end, it comes down to foundational just values. So fun. And I, I'm super excited that you found an additional kind of component that I hadn't come across yet, the uh, the moral courage aspect. When you talked about, I thought it was a really cool perspective. When you talked about the organizational policies and about 
I, and, and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it. I hadn't even considered the person who thinks about how perception is reality. I hadn't even considered what you referred to as um, people's perceptions of the policies and getting to the bottom of people's perceptions of the policies. And it was one of those things where it was like, duh, yes, you're right. Everybody perceives something differently. People from different cultures perceive, you know, rules differently. Shoot, in my own family, we tease that some people are rule followers and some people aren't. And so I'm super curious what you found in that area and or if what you're diving into in the idea of people's perceptions of policies within the institutions. Yeah, I found that really interesting too. And and it really, it came out, I, I work in an area that is very diverse and we have a culture of a very high Muslim um, population. And uh, it's very interesting to see the dynamics sometimes when you have these really young Muslim students and watching the dynamics and how their culture affects their decision making. And and I've dived into that a little bit just because I find it very interesting. And I I think about those perceptions of, of, of anybody in a different culture. And one thing that, that really um, hit me too was Dr. Edgren really got me thinking about this too, because she was talking about in other countries outside of the U.S. that um, I believe over in the Middle Eastern uh, section of the world, when you have, go to medical school, you go to different, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you go to um, different countries for your residency and it might not be your home country. So there's all of these different melting pot of different cultures. So the way that you view your all your perceptions are gonna come from your culture. And I'm not necessarily thinking that you've been integrated into the professional culture just yet. So you haven't really created your professional identity. So coming from those cultures, they speak different languages, they all have different views, and a lot of times there's some um, back and forth and some fear of retaliation there. Thank you so much for coming and participating in this. This has given me a lot of thought and I look forward to working with each of you in the future.